Kids are not afraid to ask the hard questions. So maybe yeah. we shouldn't be afraid, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a journey and they have the courage of uh, that the person saying it's not none of your business. Okay. And that's okay. none of my business. It's okay. It's a perfectly valid answer. Yeah. Yes. I no respect problem. that. Yeah. But I want you to know that I'm asking because I care. And exactly. if you don't want to talk about it, you're right not to talk about it. But I don't want you to think I don't care. Exactly. That is caring. I'm your host, Anna Malikian. And before we start, please remember to visit Mindset.Zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone to access all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. And if you want to get the free chapter of my book, Mindset Zone, please go to mindset.zone forward slash book. Today, our special guest is David Richman. And David is a speaker, consultant, and author of several books, including Cycle of Lives, 15 People's Stories, 5,000 Miles, and the Journey Through the Emotional Chaos of Cancer. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, David. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you, Anna. Yes, this is, I think, your second book, correct? It's the second book that's not industry-specific. So yeah, yes. I've written some books on finance and uh, some on endurance athletics, but this is more general public book. Yeah, it's yeah. my second one. And the first one was in 2014 that you yes. published. It was winning in the middle of the pack. Winning in the middle of the pack. Yeah. Different mindset, different mindset. Different mindset. But the, I, I only read the one that we are going to focus our conversation today, the cycle of life. But I was looking in Amazon and that first one was all about the, how to get more out of ourselves than we ever imagined. And I think you go through your own journey from overweight and sedentary smoker to quitting smoker, start running and becoming an endurance athlete that you are today, that you do the Ironman triathlons, ultra marathons. And in this book, you speak about your journey from coast to coast in a 5,000 mile bike ride. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So the winning in the middle of the pack idea came from this idea that kind of I lived my whole life up until my late 30s where I was worried about how I was perceived or I was worrying about making other people happy and doing stuff to be a better kid or a better parent or a better father or a better, better employee or whatever. Meanwhile, not worrying about the guy in the mirror. And when I finally started to care about the guy in the mirror, I realized he was not doing so good. And so winning in the middle of the pack is this idea that, you know, when you go to a race, everybody wants to see who wins. And then you kind of want to see like, who's the last one that makes it in just before the cutoff, but everybody in between, they're just doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for a medal. They're winning for themselves. And so I had to change my mindset to stop, stop worrying about, the way I think others perceive me and worry more about, about getting uh, to be the best that I could be for me. So that's what that book was. And then it led to the second book too. Yeah. And because I know the turning point for the second book, well, I think I know 
but for your own transformation and decide, okay, this is the time in my life that I should look in the mirror and really take responsibility of my, uh, I like the word responsible. I'm able to do, this is my life. We, we all of us get a set of cards speaking that you are in Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to use the, the game metaphor here, yeah. but we all, all of us are dealt a set of a hand of cards that we don't really have much control over, but we absolutely have control about how do we play those cards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think th that was the moment of your transformation was when you decide, okay, I have these cards, let me play in a way that is serving me. And my question to you is that what was the accumulation of things and then suddenly I, you decide something or there was like a waking, a wake up call? There was uh, definitely a, a wake up call. So, you know, oftentimes don't you find out like you go, oh man, like I've been doing something for years and it finally just hit me. Like, why am I that way? Or you, you wake up and all of a sudden it's years later and you're thinking, man, I had this bad person in my life or I did these, I wasted my time on these type of things or whatever. But for me, when I had this wake up call, it was, I was overweight. I was a smoker. I wasn't active. I was very, very, very stressed out. I was pretty successful in the financial services business, but I was stressed out. I was living in a relationship. I was married to an abusive alcoholic. It was very, very, very stressful. I had brand new four-year-old twins and uh, it was very unsafe for them, very unsafe for me. And I was just in a very, very dark place. And I remember saying to my, my one of my friends, Anna, who I could confide in about my problems over and over and over. I'd always tell him about my problems and, and, and he'd listen. And then one day he said to me, man, he says, I'm so tired of you telling me about your problems because you're the problem. Mm. And I went, what? What? <laughs> Like, how in the world, how can I be the problem? This person, this, and this person, that, and this situation, this, and this situation. And he goes, no, 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 no. Listen, man. He said, look, every thing in your life is like a wild animal. You go find it. You take it home. You clean it. You feed it. You take care of it. And then you go to pet it and it bites you. And then you wonder, why did it bite you? And he says, you need to worry about why you're always finding wild animals. Like, why, why don't you look in the mirror and find out what your problem is? Because why do you always look for problems? Why do you always find yourself in the wrong situation? It's you. It's not them. Tough love. Tough love. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I heard that before, but I never really heard it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he says, why don't you go home and take a look in the mirror and ask the guy in the mirror what the problem is? And I said, wow. Okay. So I actually went home. And I looked in the mirror and I was talking to myself. I probably looked like an idiot. And I said, Hey, dude, what's your problem? Like, what's your deal? And I just became honest with myself to say, here's what's good. And here's what's bad. And here's what needs to change. And you got one chance and you might as well do it now. And, and that was the start of it. So that was a, that was the aha moment. And from that start to you, let's just have a timeline here until you run your first marathon. <laughs> one year, two years, how long are we speaking here? Well, I kind of went full force because uh, I'm used to working very hard. I'm used to being very active. And even though a lot of that was in turmoil or chaos, I kept the same energy level, but then started working on things in a positive way rather than a negative one. So the... 
day I quit smoking, I tried to run down the block and I couldn't run all the way down the block. But then within a week, I could run a mile. And then a few weeks later, I did a 5K and I had smoked for 20 years. So, you know, and I was still probably 50 or 60 pounds overweight. So by the time I did a, a half Ironman about four months later, and I did a full Ironman about eight months after I quit smoking. So I, I went pretty hard and fast into trying to turn my life around and become healthy because I figured I wasted a lot of time and I need to do it now. Like I need to figure it out. I need, I need, to, I need to set my goals super high. Wow. So in one year, the transformation, uh, you're really transforming less than one year. Way less than a year. Yeah. Wow. And it's only because I just said, uh, I'm used to putting what I think is everybody else first. So why don't I put myself first? Not in a selfish way. Like I still <laughs> really took care of my kids. I got them and me to safety. And out of that relationship, we were finally in a healthy place. I was still working very hard, but I just used all this extra energy to a positive thing. And I said, well, listen, man, if you have no idea who you are, you haven't been the best you. So you better work hard, make up for the time and, and be, try to become the best you. So was a journey of self-improvement physically, but also psychologically, there was lots of personal growth in the process too. Tons. I, I had to rewire my brain because, I mean, look, you know, mindset is all about right, yeah. how we think, but the voice that we have inside is so different than, than we think it is. We're so mean to ourselves and we're so negative to ourselves and we have to overcome just years and years and years of, of trauma and the way we deal with things and It, it takes a long time to rewire your brain. So do you think that took you longer, the rewiring of the brain than the rewired of your body? Yeah, for sure. Because your body can adapt, but you can, re I mean, your body is amazing. Yes. Right. The body is amazing what it can do. Your mind, though, it takes a lot more time because we beat ourselves up mentally so much and so often, you know, even during, I'll give you an example, like during my transformation. So the very first time that I was going to go do a half Ironman, which is like 70 miles, you know, swimming, biking and running for 70 miles straight. And I had no idea how to do that. I had never done anything like that. I'm still very overweight. I don't think of myself as an athlete. I'm not in shape, quote unquote. I never done anything like that before. And I go to the race and it gets ready to start in the morning. And I look around and everybody looks like a Greek God, you know, and I'm like, There's not an ounce of fat and everybody's so fit and they, oh my God, they belong here. I don't belong here. Like, I don't belong here. And I just started beating myself up. Like, get out of here. You don't belong here. These are athletes. You're not an athlete. You're an overweight smoker. You're a loser. You're not ever going to be anything like this. Get. So I almost turn around Anna, and go to my car and drive home because I don't belong in that group. But then the gun goes off. And the first wave of athletes go swimming and I look back to the back and I go, oh my gosh, there's people swimming on their back and people that don't know how to swim. And, and I'm like, well, they don't seem to care. Like, why do I care how I'm comparing my, why don't I just try to do my best and see how that works out? And, and I can tell you 20 stories like that, that over three, four, five years gave me a way to really understand how to rewire my brain, like to say, you know, you got to change your mindset, right? Yeah. So what was the year of this transformation? So that happened right at the time that I was uh, getting a divorce. My kids were not quite five years old. So that was in 2003. 
2003. Yeah. So now we're 20 years later. Yes. Wow. Congrats. Amazing. Thank so, you. so around the 2000s, you decide mm-hmm. to retake control of your life, transform your life. Uh, physically, mentally, rewiring a much more positive attitude. Mm-hmm. Then, unfortunately, your sister had a very bad situation with the cancer. Yeah. So at the time when I finally, like somebody took off some blinders and said, hey, dude, you got your whole life ahead of you. Like, go, go live it. Make it something special. Like, do what you want to do. You know, be spectacular. Be the best you you can be. I was very, I don't know, like childlike enthusiastic about that. Like, oh my God, you mean I can matter? Like it matters. Like I can matter. Oh, and I see this big, long road of possibility ahead of me. And literally within the same couple of weeks that that first time when I was like, wow, you mean I could matter. And I see this big life ahead of me. And then uh, I get a call from my sister and she says uh, that she has terminal brain cancer. And so my journey's long and endless. Her journey's going to be very short and, and lead to her death. And so that was pretty, it was a stark reality to deal with. And it really gave me the ability to pay attention to what she was going through in a really special way, right? Because I was just taken by how, man, I just filled with optimism and hope and and looking for the future. And then how somebody else uh, has no future. And and it was really troubling and really demanded a lot of my attention. And that's when I noticed that people were really not good at having conversations about the emotional side of trauma, about the emotional side of difficulty. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my brain around it, but it's very, very true. I I haven't met any one person that doesn't have some amount of understanding agreement can relate to the idea that when it comes to having hard conversations about the emotional side of trauma, like cancer, you know, really difficult things like that. They're really unequipped to have those hard conversations, even with the people that are closest to them. And I wanted to try to figure out why, why is that? Why, why is it so hard? So you had to deal with your own emotional journey through that. Mm -hmm. You were already in a better place than you were a decade before. Mm -hmm. In the book, you really did a great job in the cycles of life of keeping us engaged in so many d- different dimensions. You have the through line through through the story of you dealing and trying to make sense of all what your sister went through and your reaction and the response to all of that and your mission to travel, go by coast to coast, to raise money in your bike journey that is grueling in itself and uh, cra- so crazy in so many levels and so inspiring <laughs> in so many others. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Then each chapter also has amazing stories of amazing people of all different flavors that mm-hmm. the common thread is that they encounter cancer as survivors, as family members of people that survive, people that didn't survive. So all the different dimensions of it and conversations around yeah, because what I wanted to do is when I would do events and I would go like do a charity event or I would do a endurance event and try to raise money, I noticed that people were really good about talking about the tasks related to cancer. How do I find a better doctor? How do I sleep better? How do I eat better? How do I get my kids watched where when I'm going to chemo? How, uh, like, 
they were really good. There was a lot of help, a lot of support, a lot of education, a lot of guidance in these areas. But then when it came to the emotional side, like, how do you feel about it? And talk to me about what you're going through. It's a very quiet, lonely place. Because even you, one of the ways, and correct me if my inference is wrong, one of the ways that you had to cope with the losing your sister was, okay, maybe there is something I can do, a task that I can perform. You did a 24-hour race, yes. correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To raise money to a cancer cause. You were also in that task mode. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's easy because... Think about it when like, oh man, like, like somebody at work or something, right? And you know, they're going through something really, really difficult. And all you want to do is like, oh, can I bring you some food? Can I, can I clean the shoes? Can I take your kids to school? What can I do to help? Right. But what's not, that's really easy. And we can wrap our brains around those things. And it's great that people always rally. Some people are isolated. Some people are lonely and they don't have the help, but a lot of times they're able to get those kind of task related help. But when it comes to how do you feel about it and talk to me about the emotion of what you're going through, how difficult is it? Do you feel abandoned? And when, you, when you're feeling isolated and lonely, how can we talk about that, that emotional side of it? It's just, it's very, very difficult. And people often don't engage in those conversations uh, very easily, if at all. And, and that's what I wanted to explore. I'm a cancer survivor myself. Mm-hmm. My story with cancer was in 2016, uh, I had inflammatory breast cancer and and I'm very task oriented too. So I can identify in myself the kind of same thing because when you go to the doctor, you want this to know what is the plan, what can I do, or at least I, what can I do? What are the plan of action? What, how can we make this work? And even a couple of years later in 2018, I had cancer in the, the, the breast. And that time was more of a wake up call because the first time was like, I thought that, okay, I can hold my breath and this, I will plan, I will make or do whatever is need to do. And then in the other side, I can forget this. But then when I had the second one was, no, no, maybe there is more lessons here to be learned and I have to change something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there, there was more dealing with the emotional aspect of it. And that's probably a lot more difficult and a more foreign to you than dealing with the tasks, right? Like Absolutely. You can talk to the doctor, you can figure out what do I need to do to deal with this thing? I can get, I can deal with it. I can move past it. Da, 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 da. But when you start talking about the emotional side of it or want to talk about the, or deal with that thing, it can be a very lonely place because how, how do you let others in? How do you put yourself out there? You don't want to be a burden. You don't want to put, make people uncomfortable. A lot of people might not be comfortable talking to you at all and they might abandon you, right? There's a lot of isolation because people don't want to hurt your feelings. They don't know what to say. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So they say nothing and they disappear. And I think there is a parallel here between uh, your own personal journey of transformation when you are saying that physically was easier to become physically fit and it took you longer to grow psychologically to the same level. And in many ways, I think by our education, the way that we do things in our modern society and other societies too, the task, the doing, 
uh, we have a structure, we know how to do that. And we became as adults, most of us very good in doing that. Mm -hmm. But the emotional aspect, we have to foster and to create conditions for the growth there and for the development there. Yeah, because we have the tools. We know how to work hard. We know how to do things, right? Like there's a perfect example, Anna. I was talking to somebody who she said, wow, this is so resonating with me. And I said, why is that? And she said, because my father was the kind of dad that said, I'm the man of the house. I take care of other people. Nobody takes care of me. I'm the macho guy. I'm the guy. I don't let my guard down. I'm the rock. And then he got stomach cancer. And near the end of his journey of stomach cancer, he was in home hospice and he needed somebody to take care of him. And she goes, it was so hard for him to allow me to take in his feeding tube and clean him and do all these things. It was so difficult. There was so much tension there, but at least he let me do it. And we kind of had that between us. And I go, wow, well, what was so hard about it? She said, I never had the guts to ask him how he was feeling about it. Because my dad, just to get him to let me to help was so hard. And I was really good. I could hide around the task, she goes, but I didn't have the guts to ask him how he felt about it. And and he never would have told me. So I how could we how could we share that between us? And I'm like, man, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Why is it so hard? And so I think when we understand a little bit more, Anna, behind the idea of what people have gone through or what they're going through, because we all have traumas. We all have a young adult and childhood and adolescent traumas. If we understand a little bit more about what Anna maybe has gone through or what she's going through, we maybe have some insight into how lonely it could be or how difficult it could be to talk about the emotional side. It maybe can empower us to get out of our comfort zone and to have a hard conversation so that we can both connect in a more authentic way. Absolutely. And there is a struggle. The logical side is like hyperdeveloped and our emotional side, we don't give it the same space to grow and develop. And we are really afraid of so many things and the traumas of the past and the, the struggles. And that is what you say about creating that space for talking about. I, I was thinking about the work of Brene Brown of being vulnerable. Yeah. The strength is the contradiction. We have to be brave to deal with the emotional side, to find strength that we never imagined that we had. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very well said. I, I don't know what else I could add to that other than to say that we're not naturally equipped to do that. And and I think it's out of fear, right? It's out of fear. Like, I don't know if I let somebody in, are they going to abandon me? Are they going to look bad at me? Are they going to give me sympathy? I don't want sympathy. Are they going to look at me funny because I'm telling them I don't know what the hell to do? I mean, like, I, I mean, there's a million reasons why I understand that it's easy. Look, I'll tell you another story, right? My uh, friend, one of the people in the book, he told me that his uh, dad, childhood friend, the wife died. So he's known the his friend since childhood, known the wife and the, his friend married for 50 years. And he knows that the wife died. And so my friend calls up his dad and says, hey, how's so-and-so doing? And he goes, oh, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. And he goes, what? He goes, dude, his, his wife died. I, like, I don't know what the heck to say to him. And he goes, he's been your friend for 60 years. What do you mean you don't know what to say to him? And he goes, well, what do I say about, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk to him. And he goes, 
What talk to him the way you talk to everybody? Call him up, ask him what he had for dinner, ask him how he's doing, ask him if he saw the baseball game. Like just call him and see if he needs anything. Just talk to him because the one thing he's thinking is why is my friend of 60 years afraid to call me? Yeah. Right? And that's hard. That's hard to understand. It takes a lot of guts. It takes, it's a very fearful thing to pick up the phone and go, geez, Anna, I know you're going through your second bout of breast cancer. How are you doing? Like, cause you might say, how the heck do you think I'm doing? What a stupid question. Yeah. You're not. You know what? Just to know that somebody cares, you might say, Let me, oh, really? Thank you for calling me. Let me talk to you about that. Yeah. And I think we don't have a playbook. No. Even in terms of social norms is more like you were saying in the beginning, uh, do things, make sure that you can help with the kids or make sure that you ask if they need a ride. It's the dealing with the emotional thing that we really, most of us, fall short of. Mm -hmm. I think so. And, and what I wanted to do with this book was to get enough 360 view. I talked to doctors and patients and survivors, like you said earlier, uh, loved ones of survivors people that had cancer one time, people that had it five times, oncologists that dealt with cancer for 40 years. And I wanted to say, okay, if we get a 360 view on this, are there any parallels? Are there any similarities between their experience that will allow us, if we really see what's behind the curtain, if we really see what they've gone through, is there any similarities that will allow us to bring that into our life? So that when we have somebody that's going through something difficult, we can feel a tiny bit more empowered to have a hard conversation with them. And tell for the people that are listening to this conversation, what will be like the guidelines or some pointers that you can give to people, how they can open that conversation? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say, first of all, just realize that when you think you know what somebody's going through or what they went through, you have no idea. It's kind of like the way that People have no idea what you've gone through or what, you, what you've been going through, right? I mean, we keep these traumas just hidden away and we just learn to deal with them or not pay attention to them. And that's what everybody's done. So first things first is don't assume to know what they're going through because losing a parent might've been the greatest thing that ever happened because you hated each other. And losing a parent might be the worst thing that ever happened because it, it, it's your favorite person in the whole wide world. You don't know, right? We don't know. Uh, that's one is don't assume to know. I think number two is realize that even if somebody acts like it's not a problem, even if they act like they're so busy, even if they seem like they don't need help, remember it's way, way more of a lonely place than you think, right? And they might be pushing you away from, um, from breaking in because they don't want to be let down. They don't want to be abandoned. If I tell Anna what's going on, man, and she turns her back on me, I couldn't take it anymore. So I'll just tell her everything's fine. No, I don't need anything. It's all good because that way she can't let me down. So realize that it's a very lonely place. It's very isolating. I'd say another thing is don't say you're sorry and don't offer sympathy because it's not your fault. You don't need to say you're sorry and nobody wants sympathy. They might want you to understand how difficult it is, but nobody wants you to look at them with little sad eyes going, oh, you poor thing, you poor, that doesn't make it any better, right? Just how about, man, is that difficult? Are you struggling, right? Just ask questions and don't be afraid that the questions you're going to ask are going to be stupid because it's better to ask a stupid question to at least show that you care than to not have the guts to call 
or not have the guts to ask the question because it's it just proves to the person going through things that it's a lonely place and, and they don't deserve to talk about it, you know, and that's not right. No, and I will argue that these principles can be helpful in many, many situations. It's not just an art situation like cancer, but in so many things, even in the workplace or even with leading with teenagers, don't assume to know. I love that. Yeah. Even if they act like normal, if they are going through something, can be a very lonely place and isolate. Mm -hmm. Just be brave enough to ask questions, even if the answer is silence or no. And I think uh, if I had to add anything is be present, be there. Absolutely. And and being there, it just take it one degree more and make sure being present and being there is that you're of like mind in that moment. Right. I'll tell you another quick story. I was talking to somebody and it was such a poignant, beautiful thing that he shared with me. But he said, David, he goes, you know, I had a best friend when I was growing up and he was going through terminal cancer and he came over a few times and I went to visit him a few times. And every time I almost started to talk about what was going on, he would be like, no, 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 we're going to watch a football game. Let's grab some pizza. Jeez, I don't, I feel like I could have a couple of sips of beer and not throw up or whatever. And he goes, man, David, he's like, the only thing I wanted to do was to connect with him and just ask him like how, how he felt about it all. And he never let me do that. And I said to him, I go, wow, you were present for him. You showed him that you cared. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to know if you were maybe the only person that he didn't have to talk to about it. You were the only person that he could be somewhat normal. And I said, so I would rest in the fact that maybe you were that for him. You were the only person that he didn't have to talk to, right? But wouldn't it be nice when you were present that you next time what you could say is, all right, so you don't want to talk about it, Anna, but do you not want to talk about it because you're tired of talking about it? Or do you not want to talk about it because it's not the right time? Or do you think I'm going to look at you funny or what? Like, what's the reason? Because I'm good with whatever, right? But be present, but be out of like mind. Because just going one step further, I think, is always helpful. It's always okay to invade their space a little bit because everybody else, well, not everybody, but most people are giving them too much space. So it's okay to invade the space a little bit. You're not going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And uh, there is always, even if we say the thing that is not the right thing, we can't say what can I say? What do you need? We can ask a question. I think the best thing, ask the question. Yeah, let me give you one, one, one more example, Anna. So, you know, when you got your little five-year-old and you're walking through the grocery store and somebody walks by and they're missing an arm mm -hmm. and your little girl looks up at the person and goes, oh my God, he only has one arm. What happened? And usually the person goes, oh, you know, well, let me tell you what happened. And da, da, da. But we would never as adults ever yes. walk up and go, oh, my God, you lost an arm. Talk to me. What happened? Right. It's very isolating. These kind of traumas can be very, very lonely and isolated. I've always like, kids are not afraid to ask a hard question. So maybe yeah. we shouldn't be afraid. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a journey. And they have the courage of uh, that the person saying is not none of your business. Okay. And that's okay. none of my business is okay. It's a perfectly valid answer. Yeah. Yes. I no respect problem. that. Yeah. But I want you to know that I'm asking because I care. And exactly. if you don't want to talk about it, you're right not to talk about it. But I don't want you to think I don't care. Exactly. That is caring. Yeah. So 
to end our conversation, and I really um, will advise anybody. So it's difficult to put down. Is emotional your book? Thank you. You did an amazing, beautiful job there. So people can, I will make sure that in the show notes, I put the link to the book. Thank you. They can share Cycle of Lives. Mm -hmm. David Richman, they can find the book. They also can find your website because you also speak davidrichman.com, correct? Yep. It's your, your website. But if you would like to send them, what other resources are out there? Where will be another place that we can send them, the listeners, if they want to keep developing this more? Yeah, well, there are great organizations. And one of the cool things about the book is there's not a lot of money in books. You know that. But whatever does come in, 100% goes out to charity. And uh, the different charities are listed in the book. They're listed on my website. There are organizations like the Moffitt Cancer Center, Stupid Cancer, American Cancer Society, and a bunch of other wonderful, Michelle's Place. There's all these wonderful uh, places. And all one thing I love about the cancer community is how much they want to help, like authentic, true. They want to make an inform, comfort, and whatever. There's so many great resources out there. And, and I'm telling you, a hundred out of a hundred organizations you would reach out to only want to try to make your experience better. They don't want anything in return, right? It's just amazing. So I would say that there's tons of suggested reading. There's tons of resources. There's tremendous support groups for anybody going through anything difficult. And all you have to do is reach out a little bit and you're going to get tenfold back because these organ there's a, so many small, medium and large size cancer focused organizations care, support, you know, everything you could imagine, just reach out because they want to help so bad. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for being willing to have this conversation. Thanks for having me on. And it's really wonderful talking with you. Thank you. The thank you for listening. And remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, dot zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. And if you want to get a free chapter of my book, Mindset Zone, please go to mindset.zone forward slash book. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.